to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, full hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound On Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, I'm not sick. I don't think you're sick. And it's Halloween this week. Yay! No one is sick and no one should be paying attention to me. Everyone should be going to Twitter right now and looking at your profile picture for Twitter because <laughs> it is amazing. <laughs> well, you know, it's Halloween. I, I, have, I have a great affinity for Halloween and Halloween costumes. Um, I also feel fairly strongly that it doesn't really matter how good your Halloween costume is as long as it's creative and you didn't buy it at a store. You didn't like buy a package, you know, of something at a store. And, um, and, and as I was watching TV, like if I don't know what my Halloween costume is going to be by like September, I sort of get antsy because I know it's gonna, I'm going to be, you know, trying to put something together last minute. And so I was very relieved this year to be watching television um, in what was that March or April and have a visual pop up on one of the shows I very much enjoy and be like, that is my Halloween costume. I know it now. I have, you know, I didn't do anything about it until like a couple weeks ago, but still very relieved, very happy. It turned out pretty well as far as these things go. So looking forward to, I don't want to say what it is. Yeah. Well, where did you find the actual outfit? Oh, uh, my mom is a seamstress and made it. Ah, Nice. Yeah, there were a lot of weddings, uh, family weddings over this summer, and uh, she made those wedding dresses. So making, you know, a stunt version, not hard for her. And and where did the blood come from? Uh Oh, paint and fabric dye. Oh, cute. Yep, yep. The wig was much more challenging, but that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, what about you? Are you? Do you do Halloween? What, what's your policy with that? What's my policy? Yeah, do you do the costume? Do you dress up? Do you hand out candy? Do you shut off the light? Do people, like, how much do people trick or treat in, you know, Canadian cities? Canada is just as Halloween crazy as the States is. Uh, I am not, though. I don't, uh, I believe, I think my belief in Halloween vanished with my belief in Santa Claus. Oh, but it's fun. Is it, though? Yeah, I will say it, there is nothing quite so depressing as uh, having a totally awesome costume and nobody gets it, which is why the internet is delightful. Last year, I was the TARDIS and maybe two people got it all day. And I wore it all day because that's how I do Halloween. Um, and so I was very glad that, you know, I'm very glad to have the internet there because at least some people will get it. But um, but even so, man, it's... It's fun. It's good times. And there is some Halloween programming coming this week. We'll talk about some of that later in the podcast. Um, but I'm looking forward to I'm hoping other people will bust out some pretty sweet costumes. And I want to see them. So at the Televerse on Twitter. Yeah, definitely. And try to top Kate because it's, it's going to be tough. It's good times. You know, it's a good thing. I'm not I don't get competitive, but I don't do costume contests or anything like that. 
because I know I would lose to the cosplayers. Uh, also, also, because that's not what it's about. It's about fun. Um, but I look, I'm looking forward to to seeing some nice nerdy TV costumes this year. Later in the podcast, uh, speaking of Halloween, we're going to be talking with Steve Procopi, composed for Made of Cool News, about uh, the initiation of Sarah and Are You in the House Alone, the the fifth installment of Capone's Horror Picks or Steve Procopi's Horror Picks. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, and if you haven't heard of those, <laughs> it's because they're insanely obscure TV movies from 1978. And don't be afraid of spoilers or it's like, oh, am I missing out on a hidden jet? You're not. It was just a really fun segment. Yeah, it's a lot of fun talk. You know, they can't, you know, they're not all going to be winners. And we took a chance with these ones. And I think we had fun anyways. So, you know, that's coming at the end of the podcast. Always important. a pleasure to have Steve yeah. on. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, talked with you guys this week uh, a bit on Twitter and uh, Facebook and all that good stuff. Uh, Brian mentioned that uh, he thought it was a particularly gut-wrenching episode of Kingdom this week. Glad I was glad to see that any of our listeners are watching Kingdom. We haven't really been talking about it because, Simon, I know you haven't had a chance to catch up with it yet. Um, so we're still not going to talk about this week until, you know, I've already given my thoughts on the first four. Uh, but I will, I will be checking in with the show later into its run. Hopefully you'll get a chance to catch up with it. But I do think it's, you know, it's a worthwhile show for people to check out and i'm looking forward to catch getting some new episodes of that later this week we do have reviews of it up at sound on site for those curious by the the lovely whitney um we talked el enchanted or actually i talked el enchanted with josh spiegel and elena of course josh spiegel is the co-host of masterpiece cinema over at movie mezzanine formerly at sound on site and uh i was on that on the podcast to talk about el enchanted i believe that's going live this weekend um, it may be later, uh, later than that, but yeah, I, I have strong feelings about Ellen Enchanted. Was there a lot of righteous indignation? There was, uh, once I was given the go ahead, there's quite a bit, uh, of, of F-bombs. Lots of, uh, you know, I, I tried to keep it Disney for a while and they're like, no, go for it. I was like, okay, yeah, then let's, let's get into how terrible so much of this movie is. That's a conversation for another time. But if, if you're curious, I'll be tweeting that out once it goes live. That was a lot of fun to talk with them. Um, have, have you seen Ellen Enchanted, Simon? Uh, uh, no, I have not. Uh, but for those who want to hear me talk about movies, uh, I was, as, as always, I was co-hosting, uh, or really hosting with other people co-hosting. I feel like if you introduce the podcast, you're hosting. Uh, anyway, uh, that was the Sound Outs Actually Sorted Cinema podcast because we were talking about genre films mainly. Uh, myself and Ricky D and Kate Renabom, who who we're suckering into having in a more permanent capacity these days, which Woo! is fantastic. And we talked about John Wick, which <laughs> anyway, just listen to the podcast. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Kate is awesome, and we need to. She needs to watch more TV so that we can get her back on the podcast because she's always a pleasure to have on. Um, yeah, and I I need to see that movie so that I can listen to that podcast. It's I will say, though, it's behind. I still haven't seen Gone Girl. I still haven't seen Boyhood. You really don't need to see John Wick, dude. I really don't? I don't know. I heard good. Okay, well, noted. Noted. Okay. Wait till somebody Uh, bootlegs the first 10 minutes so that you get all the scenes of Keanu Reeves, sad Keanu with his little insanely adorable puppy, and then you can forget the rest of the movie. Trust me on this one. Um, I talked uh, with Carl a little bit, and he says, Excellent TV has lowered my tolerance for watching Ordinary Fair, but I think I have now watched all the good shows. And Carl, challenge accepted. Okay, Simon, what are some good shows that we don't think Carl has seen? Besides, you know, most of the stuff in the DVD shelf. Oh, God. Um, 
I mean, do we want to limit to currently running? Uh, that that's such a broad question. I mean, for me, good shows can extend into like a whole realm of totally unpalatable, super surreal, fucked up, like Adult Swim and MTV Two stuff that probably only brain damaged and deeply stoned humans should even enjoy. So, like, where do we draw the line at good? <laughs> Well, I mean, there there are plenty of of good, especially if you if you want to have the distinction of great, that's then you have it's a different conversation. But good or really you know, like really satisfying and enjoyable shows. I mean, I'm not going to talk about reality this week because I don't really have much new to say. But some of those are some of the most rea- like reliable shows for me. Uh, Top Chef and Amazing Race. Uh, Top uh, Top Chef Boston has been really reliable so far this season, and Amazing Race is having one of its best seasons in years. Uh, so those are two shows that don't get talked about very much as being among the, uh, the you know the the slate of good TV right now. Uh, well, and <laughs> there is a series that we don't talk about that is, I think, not only good but great. That is a stealth candidate. Do we do now? Should I maybe not even mention this because we don't talk about it? But it's like. It could like sneak attack at the end of the year, and I, I I sort of want people to guess at it. Yeah, the that is definitely a show that is going to come up in uh, conversation before the end of the year. I know that for a fact. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a lot of really good shows out there. Yeah, I I look for let's keep that vague and let the listeners guess what show we're talking about. That is consistently great, and we don't tend to talk about it on the podcast, but we watch it. Yes, yes, we do. Although not necessarily Ooh. in the same form. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Okay, now that we're being annoyingly <laughs> obscure, uh, we should be. But but Carl, uh, let us know what. Like, give me give me a genre to work in, and I'll and I'll do my best to stump you on a good show that you have not seen. Because uh, that because again, challenge challenge accepted. Uh, but we should uh, we should move on with the with the podcast. We do have quite a few shows to talk about this week. Um, I'll just mention that at Sound on Sight, we're finishing up Horror Month, 31 Days of Horror. So TV articles going up, um, as well as film and comics and, and other articles as well. You guys should totally check it out. Uh, but for now, we'll take a break and come back with our week in comedy. <laughs> week in comedy simon's going to talk a little mike tyson mysteries and its premiere the end as well as the second episode uh we'll both talk a little bit about the newsreaders premiere as well as preview benched which is starting up this week tonight as uh this episode goes live uh then we'll talk a little bit about blackish crime and punishment and jane the virgin chapter two which is from last week but given when we record unfortunately we'll be a week behind with jane the jane the virgin uh let's kick things off uh though with mike tyson mysteries which had its premiere for those unfamiliar simon what is the premise of mike tyson mysteries all right so mike tyson uh, mysteries is the first of two adult swim shows we're talking about today it premieres tonight and i've seen the first uh, two episodes it premiered yesterday we're pretending it's sorry two. you're right 
Right. Uh, it premiered on uh, Monday, the 27th, and I've seen the first two episodes. I will explain the concept to you, and if the concept sounds like fun, you are going to want to watch it. Uh, it stars, uh, it's animated, and it stars Mike Tyson as himself. He is the head of a Scooby-Doo-style investigative team, the other members of whom are Norm MacDonald as an alcoholic who has been transformed into a pigeon but remains an alcoholic, uh, Jim Rash from Community and other places as John Chambers, the ninth Marquess of Queensbury. You can find him on Wikipedia. And uh, Rachel Ramirez as Young He, who is uh, Mike Tyson's supposed ad adopted daughter. And if it's, if you want to see those characters solve Scooby-Doo-esque mysteries involving Bobby Fischer and Cormac McCarthy and John Updike and other literary and historical references, then this is the show for you. If you're not so interested in the idea of a series starring Mike Tyson for certain ethical reasons, uh, I could get that too. Yep, and... Uh... That's the thing, because pretty much everything you say about that show feels like, uh, yeah, I should, uh, I should love this show. But then it comes back to it's a show starring and about, um, not even about, it's a show starring Mike Tyson. And I'm just, I'm not going to watch or support a show starring a convicted rapist. That's not going to happen for me. And yes, he went to prison and yes, he served his time, whatever you want to say. But there are so many people who want to have a TV show and are great. And why don't they have a TV show that and there's so much TV out there to watch. Why am I going to support a show giving money to a convicted rapist? I think that's totally fair. Uh, I. 90 minutes is not enough podcast to get into the uh to this particular debate of you know, separating art from the artist and when it's okay to support certain things or not support certain things or to you know use sections of your brain to separate things that people have done versus things that they've produced uh so i'll just say i get it <laughs> i totally get it and i you're not wrong well, and that's the thing. I'm not saying this is a bad show or not funny show or that I don't understand uh, what would be appealing about it. Just for me, that's a non-starter. So uh, I will not be talking about it. But if you want to check in with it, Simon, you'll have to let me know over the course of the season. I, I mean, I'll just say that I feel like the first two episodes, like, pretty pretty much established the tone. There's some good laughs. I mean, the voice cast besides Tyson is kind of amazing. So... Yeah, it's a thing. I, I probably won't feel the need to check in with it, but like I said, if the description sounds tempting, then it probably will be. Yep, that you know, that's that usually is how Adult Swim shows tend to go, and uh, at least in my experience, and I would tie newsreaders in with that as well. Um, I was uh, less interested in newsreaders when I heard uh, Matthew Zickel was not going to be on it because uh, he's got another show. Then, of course, they recast Alan Tudyk as the new newsreaders host. I was hoping there'd be some reference there uh, to, to the change in host, but I, if it, I missed it, if there was, uh, I am very glad to have the show back. I doubt we'll talk about it every week on the podcast, but it certainly was a fun premiere. Yeah. That premiere is hilarious. And actually in atypical sketch comedy format, uh, I actually thought the opening sketch with the fuck dancing was easily the least funny. And everything after that was kind of a riot. And the and bringing on um, Harold Perrineau for that for the uh, race relations sketch was a stroke of genius. Yeah, Harold Perrineau, he's pretty great. Um, so that was certainly certainly a lot of fun. Uh, and you know, for me, 
you know, the fuck dancing sketch really, really did work. Uh, and I, that all came down to Kamel Nanjiani. And I thought he was just hilarious with that. Uh, the whole, it went on maybe, it went on a little too long. Um, if, you know, I don't necessarily want to give, give them fuck dancing with the stars, but just Nanjiani, that's just, that's perfect. That was just great. He is great, but I have to say the MVP of the episode and possibly the season, if they're going to keep doing that as they did last season, Ray Wise. Ray Wise <laughs> is amazing on this show. Oh my God. Yeah, he's pretty fun. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you're not going to get any argument from me. Ray Wise is a, is a delight. And it's nice to see him getting to just have this much fun. My only complaint, I guess, if it is a complaint with this, is that they have each of these different segments hosted by a different person. It would be nice if there was a woman in the mix. It's just, it's a very dude-heavy show. And, uh, you know, where's, where's the newsreader's Samantha B. Or Jessica Williams. I mean, we'll, we'll knowing them, they'll. Pro I, I doubt that they're going to have the same talent on every episode because there's some pretty heavy hitters in there. I, I imagine they're, they're going to cycle them in and out as they can. Yeah, and I would also go for more Tudic as well because I think he's very fun, but he's he's not in a lot of this. That's true, but he's the he's probably the one we can count on at least being in every episode, which is pretty sweet. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this premiere? Do you think you'll stick with it, or will this be one that you? Uh, at some point, go, oh, yeah, newsreaders, and catch up with. I'm, it, it may be one of those that I deliberately let pile up for a while so I can just watch three or four in a row because it's such a great little sugar rush. Yeah, there's really – we say it every time these Adult Swim shows come up, but 10-minute comedies, they, those are just delightful. They're fantastic. Yeah, speaking of, when is Adventure Time coming back? Because, I mean, I need my fix. It's been forever. It has a Halloween – forever being like two months. Um, yeah. We we have a Halloween special coming up, and I think that's it for a while. Uh, but it mm -hmm. is soon. Okay, I'll have to keep my eye on that because yeah, I, I've got like half of season five left, and then I'm completely caught up on the show, uh, and so that's unacceptable. Is, is season five the one that's fifty two episodes long? Yes, <laughs> yes, and I and I only have half of it left. Oh my god, that's such an amazing season. Yes, it certainly is. Okay, l let's move on though to our next show, which is uh, benched, which is premiering on Tuesday the twenty eighth. Depending on when this gets out, either tonight or it did yesterday um this is the new show i want to say it's on usa starring eliza coop as a lawyer who is a corporate attorney blows up her uh has a blow up in her personal life that then leads her to blow up her professional life and she ends up working as a public defender and she and she's been benched see what they did there, uh, I see what they did there. so uh is this uh, what did you think about this comedy and uh, does it fill any, you know, where does it fit in the various alumni of happy endings shows? So we got like new girl, we got marry me where, you know, the various places or Mindy project, I should off. say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the people who loved happy endings aren't, I, this has almost nothing in common with happy endings. Unfortunately, um, this is a weird one because the premise, the way that the, the, this show is, the, the the general premise of this show, general premise, uh, could have existed at any point in the last 40 years. And a lot about the, especially the pilot, just in terms of the actual plot, just feels so creaky. But uh, the cast is incredible. I mean, we've got Jay Harrington, a.k.a. Ted, from Better Off Ted. 
uh, the ubiquitous Jack McGee from like a million things, uh, particularly Rescue Me. Uh, we've got Maria Bamford, who I hope this is the next step into her getting her own sitcom because she's incredible. And uh, who am I forgetting? Uh, Oscar Nunez from The Office and uh, some other familiar faces I'm probably already forgetting about, but a really, really strong. Oh, of course, Fred Melamed as the judge in the first episode, probably recurring in other episodes. I've seen the first two. Um, so like weird good wife tie in there. Uh, and it's also notably co-created by Michaela Watkins, who you'll know from Transparent and a million other things. Trophy wife, tear. Trophy wife, yes. So, you know, interesting personnel all around. So it's like this mix of like really weirdly old-fashioned sitcom tropes with some actually really funny uh, dialogue and characters. And of course, you've danced around the fact that, the you know, Eliza Coop is the star here and she totally earns it because she's consistently hilarious maybe a little bit more broad and over the top than i'd prefer but you know there's time there's there's ways to finesse that yeah it's it's a big performance but i think that's also what the it it's a big performance in this kind of a show because the show isn't going for zany over the top in the way that a marry me is if you put her on marry me the same performance you'd be you know extolling the nuances of her subtlety that's true uh, but she she's just very she's fantastic I think in this she's really strong the material isn't always as good as her but she does a good job uh, with it and certainly yeah I I didn't it didn't make much of an impact on me when I first watched these episodes I enjoyed them but I was forgot about them pretty quickly you know in in the busy TV landscape then as I was going back as we were going to talk about it this week I was just like kind of glancing at a few things about it um, even just an image image search pulled up uh, the some a few things from the third episode I was like oh yeah that was really great that was a lot of fun so I think as long as people don't go into this with overly raised expectations they will have fun with it and certainly while this is not a happy endings kind of show I think fans of Coop from happy endings will be very pleased because it is a similarly strong performance from her. Um, and as for everybody else, I mean, I can't agree with you more about uh, Maria Bamford. Uh, it would be lovely to see her get her own show. So if this can lead to, you know, if they can develop that character. Right now, they just haven't. If they develop some of these secondary characters, the actors are talented enough to do something with them. Whether the writing will give them more to do remains to be seen. Side note slash plug, Maria Bamford's uh, comedy album, Ask Me About My New God, probably the best comedy special of the last couple of years and i'm including louis ck oh yeah it's a big deal it's really really good uh so you know consider checking that out let's move on to our next show here and that is uh the first of two check-ins we talked checked in with these last week we're gonna check in with them this week as well and the first is blackish crime and punishment and i'm gonna start the conversation by saying simon did you get spanked as a child um, if I did, I blocked it out, but I'm pretty sure I didn't because I was pretty like, I was a pretty quiet kid. Surprise. Uh, I don't know. Did you, did you, I can't imagine you ever earned a spanking. Oh, no, I did. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, kids are kids. <laughs> so, I mean, we all do stupid what stuff. What did you do? I don't, I don't even remember. I probably, you know, was fighting with my sister. Did you, Well, I hope she got a spanking too. Well, yes, of course. You know, as, as Pop-Pop says, 
you know, <laughs> ass, 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 you know, there's, you, there's not a window for aging out in, in, in the household in Blackish, uh, or at least in Pop's household, maybe. Um, but so having, you know, for a span, you know, our parents also phased out that as well at a certain point, but, um, having had spankings as part of, you know, when I was a little kid, um, and no, I don't think they messed me up. I don't get the big deal that people have with them. Who knows what I'll do with my kids someday. But um, I really enjoyed this episode. The whole conversation around was like, this, again, Black History Speaking My Language. The way that Black History structures episodes around individual issues is uh, an approach. I don't know if it's like a super sustainable approach for like the show's entire run. Because I feel like if they keep doing like single issue episodes, they're eventually going to run out. But... Um, uh, for now, for the early run of the show, while we're just still getting to know it, I think it's a smart way to do it. Well, I can tell you right now that that is going to change this week. The Halloween episode is centered around a prank war, a tradition of pranking in the family. And uh, I just, I get, I, I get the impulse. I do. But prank episodes are just never as funny as shows think they're going to be. The prank episode is probably the weakest in, in Listed's first season. Uh, one of the weakest uh, that I can remember in recent memory with um, Parks and Rec. Break episodes just don't tend to work out. Well, hopefully Blackish can break the curse. It's a fun one, but it just, uh, for me, it doesn't compare to the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah, and again, I do think that uh, as great as all, like, the, the relationships and, you know, most of the kids are on the show, there's that little right dosing of uh, the spice of, <laughs> of a drunk pop-pop is just, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a delightful addition here. Lawrence Fishburne, so glad he's on the show. Definitely. Well, let's move on to our final show this week in comedy, and that is Jane the Virgin. And we're, ta- we're going to talk about Chapter 2, which is the episode from last week, as opposed to Chapter 3, the episode from this week. And I just got to start with uh, what the single moment in this episode that made me the happiest, and that's when they killed, uh, what's his name, Zaz something? Zazzo. Zazzo. When they killed Zazzo in, 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 at the end of the episode, I was just so relieved that they were not going to do... Um, just love triangle and just all of these things we've seen before. They're going to do other things we've seen before with who killed Zazo, but that is way more entertaining to me. What did you think of our episode ending twist? Uh, well, the twist was, I mean, first of all, the twist further cemented my view that it's totally Brian Fuller Jr. in a good way. Um, and for, also, the show now has a body count, and I'm wondering whether that's going to escalate, and the show is just going to like get even more ridiculous by adding a, a long string of murders, which <laughs> would be totally telenovela appropriate and awesome. So, you know, that's a whole other dimension the show gets to play with now. I'm just having a blast with this show. I, there are certain aspects of it that I'm not totally sure about. It seems like in the in this second episode, we we add. There is an effort to dimensionalize more characters, some of which works and some of which doesn't. Uh, for instance, this whole notion of um, of Hotelier's wife having this domineering mother. I don't know how I feel about that or if that makes her more interesting. But uh, a lot of the other stuff really works, and especially the stuff with Jane and her boyfriend and sort of negotiating this new territory, I think, uh, finds a nice sweet spot. Uh, between being funny and being refreshing. Also, we have characters saying abortion out loud in English in this episode, which, damn, that's awesome. 
Not that I think abortion is awesome, but you, you, know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> we uh, Also awesome, you got to sue her ass for the doctor. Mm. Well, I mean, that's that's specifically an American fixation. I'm sorry. Like, like, like Jane says at the end of the episode, she can't be a doctor. She artificially inseminated the wrong person. She's got to lose her license. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, I get that. You guys no, are way more righteous no. about that than we are. Oh, my God. You've <laughs> got to be kidding me. You've got to be kidding me. You don't think that the the doctor who artificially inseminates Look, I'm not arguing the wrong with you. person. I, I'm not oh arguing with God. you on that point. I'm just saying we're not as litigious a society. So, like, that particular aspect didn't... Like, I get it. I, I, I get that there's very obviously a case to be made, but, like... The, the the righteous indignation of that woman must be sued is just never crosses my mind while watching this show. Well, but it's not it's not that so much as the fact that the show addresses it. Yes, and yes. and is in in the second because that's one of the first things that I saw in the comments um, when I reviewed the pilot over at the AV Club was people talking about yeah this story would be over right away because you just sue the company get all you know get a millions of dollars and then be taken care of for the rest of her life. Um, so so I know for a lot of people watching it, if they didn't if they tried to sweep it under the rug with the oh she's just not going to sue it wouldn't feel honest and so the fact that they get are getting some of this stuff out of the way right away is is really you know reassuring to me so that's that's what i meant more than anything no like that no that in that sense i totally get it i just i i find the the culture gap slightly amusing um yeah lots of good stuff in this episode i wonder how long they can keep the boyfriend interesting because i feel like you know this week we have him beginning to scheme a little bit more and be a little bit more openly uh duplicitous but uh you know there's the show is still young it, it's got it's gotten a full season order now which i believe for this show means 22 episodes and with the sh- with the plot moving at this sort of clip and with so much happening i am worried about the show's long-term prospects but i think that one thing that's really helpful is the fact that gina rodriguez who is necessarily at the center of the show is fucking amazing this woman is just the bomb yeah we loved her in the pilot. She's even better in this second episode. She's so good. It's just like, well done casting people. Well done. Yeah, like she's not just adorable and not just funny and not just, you know, empathetic and not just, you know, projects... Relatable. Relatable or projecting and... intelligence or etc. She manages to be all those things in every scene and she she's just a natural. Yeah. She's really good. Also, really good, uh, the voiceover. Mm. Who it's does the voiceover? Because the voiceover is fucking amazing. The voiceover is amazing. And just like, and not just the delivery, which is fabulous, but the writing. I nearly, uh, I just, I nearly died with the, it is important to note that he's not a virgin. Oh, really, I don't care, but he thinks it's important. Yeah, it's like, it's not particularly important to me. Yes. Yeah, that was that was one of the funniest moments of the week for sure. If they can, that will be another key thing to like the, the way the show toys with uh, these little formal devices of the the typewritten intertitles and the narration. I think will be another thing to keeping it vital. That was that was something that, for instance, awkward did really well in its first couple seasons or first season at least, and you know then sort of trailed off. Yeah, uh, 
one other line I do have to mention, uh, when the, the boyfriend is saying he can pr- do the, represent the male perspective at the meetings. <laughs> and they're like, uh, don't, don't play that down. card. <laughs> don't do that. Yes. That, that will was not great. serve you well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's what we get with the, um, the father, or, or I should say, uh, Jane's father, not Jane's baby daddy, uh, works really well and I, I like that he is just so egotistical while also you know seeming genuine and you know and and all this other stuff again they they make petra more nuanced in this episode by having her actually legitimately care about her her husband which we know because the narrator said it and he's awesome so we believe him um and and so they're doing that with everyone and i like what they're doing with with jane's father as well mm-hmm and yeah, they they strike a nice balance with him where yes, he is vain and egotistical because he's an actor, but uh, he does seem to genuinely care and he's willing to be patient. And I really hope they keep that up. And, do, and what I'm worried about in the long term with the plot moving so fast is them ultimately just dismissing characters or throwing them under the bus or being like, ah, they screwed up. We're going to get rid of them and replace them with someone else. But you know, I'm fretting because I'm enjoying. I don't fret if I don't enjoy. Yeah, so pilots are hard, right? Yes. Second episodes are usually so much harder. There's, they're very, you know, there's a, a an illustrious group of great pilots. A lot of those don't have great follow-ups. This second episode is, is I'd say it's at least as good, if not better, than the first episode. So what's coming next? Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm going to be watching this one with, I mean, we're going to get done recording and then I'm going to go hunt it down. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is it's it's queued up on my DVR for the moment we finish recording. I hate you. I'm very much looking forward to it. <laughs> well, uh, I feel like we already know the answer to this, but uh, what wins your week in comedy? Sorry. Jane, Jane the Virgin, definitely. And uh, if you're not, it, hey, it's also I just realized how long has it been since we had an hour long in the comedies? It's been a while, uh, but yeah, it definitely earns it this week. And uh, it definitely wins this week in comedy. And I'm going to finish what I'm assuming your your sentence was. If you're not watching Jane the Virgin, you're wrong. You should watch it. It's hilarious. Yeah. D- ignore the comments. Ignore just reading. If you read the synopsis and you're like, ma, this sounds lame or ma, it's on the CW. This has absolutely nothing in common with anything else on the CW. Nothing. <laughs> Well, I would say it has a few things in common with The Flash in that it is candy-colored, it is embracing optimism, as well as doing other things. And it's not a coincidence to me that those are the two best of the new shows this fall. Gotham, with its approach, its gritty approach, is nowhere near as successful as Flash with its candy-coated one. But this is definitely the best new network show. I, I, I think it's better than The Affair, so I think it's the best new fall show, and nowhere near enough people are watching it. Yes, it's in my wheelhouse, but it's not in Simon's, and he loves it, too. That's true. I was, I, when you told me that how much you liked the pilot, I was like, Mah! I don't know. But, it, no, it's, it's really, it, most importantly, it's really funny and really charming. Yeah. If if yeah. if you will watch something for no other reason, at least watch it for those. Yeah. Well, Carl, are you watching Jane the Virgin? Because if eh? not, there's your eh? next good show. Okay, with that, we're going to take a break and we'll come back with our week in genre.
this week in genre, it's going to be a short one because we're doing Kate's genre roundup, which that'll be a lengthy genre roundup. But then after that, Simon and I are just going to talk about one episode that shields uh, Marvel's Legends of Shield, I should say, a hen in the wolf house. But first, for my genre roundup, basically all the stuff, most some of the stuff that I watched that uh, Simon didn't uh, quickly, the grim premiere, thanks for the memories, Doctor Who in the Force of the Night, the Flash things you can't outrun, Supernatural Soul Survivor, American uh, Horror Story, Edward Mordrake, uh, and Gotham Spirit of the Goat. Yes, it's back. <laughs> it never leaves. <laughs> there are several other genre shows that are fun this week, but these are the ones I'm going to talk about quickly. Grim, this is the premiere. I like that they don't immediately resolve. Um, Nick's situation. He's still grimless, and uh, it yeah, they seem to be really committing to uh to trouble, and uh that again, I like that performance, so I think it's working well. Uh, what the, I don't believe them that Renard is dead. There's just not a thing shows do have somebody get shot in the finale and then have them rush to the hospital, and not get any flashbacks, not get any scenes with them, and then they die. Just. There's something coming. I just that's my thought. Anyways, uh, I like this premiere. I think it worked well. The octopus squid th- uh, vessel was was well executed, but I don't know. I, I did I had trouble with that one. It seemed a bit like what animal haven't we done yet? Um, but on the whole, fun premiere. Glad it's back. Doctor Who my reviews up at Sound on Sight. This one, um, as I was watching it and as I was finishing, I had a little struggle with my review at first because I just kind of wanted to say. This episode's stupid, but that's not very high-minded. Uh, have you had that, Simon? When you're right, you're just like, what am I? H- have I had that with Doctor Who all the time? What? Burn. Um, the, my issue with this one is just there's so many things that happen in it that just are stupid. So when uh, Clara says, oh, we think the Earth's about to get destroyed, and it's just you, the Doctor, Clara, Danny, and a bunch of children... We bet, let's save the children. Oh, wait, what are we going to save them for? So that they can go to an orphanage in space? They're going to, they just want their families. It's like, yeah, but you know what? I bet if you ask their families, hey, we could save their lives or we could bring them to you so that they could all die in a fire, fireball of doom. I think their families would say, you know what? I'd rather have them be alive and have to get over our deaths than, you know, massacred on the earth. So having Clara and then the doctor argue and agree to just let a bunch of children die. Uh, um, there's several things like that so, so in wait, this episode. So wait a second. So a couple weeks ago, they do abortion, and this week they do child genocide. Well, it's just the whole earth is is gonna they think is gonna be destroyed, and like they they could save a handful of people, and uh, and and they they're gonna they just take these kids off in the middle of space themselves, and Danny won't go won't leave the children behind. So then, because we heaven forbid the children survive as orphans, because that would just be the worst thing in the world. <laughs> I hope you aren't an orphan watching <laughs> because, this show. Because everyone knows orphans are worse than human garbage. And then, and then let's also then we'll let Danny die, and then we'll let Clara die too because she's not going to leave Danny. You know, it's like just there's they're trying, and there's a couple nice moments in that exchange, but I can't I can't give them that. There's so much in this episode. I love Doctor Who. I will give them so much. I was totally fine with Space Egg Moon. You know, the moon is an egg for a space dragon. Whatever. 
I don't care. I can accept that. I can't accept a forest of trees covering the entire earth overnight and then poofing into fairy dust the next day and no one's going to remember it. No, I'm sorry, Doctor Who. I don't care how pretty of an episode it was. You have to try harder than that. Some some lovely literary quotes and references are not enough to make up for that. So um, there was a lot of stuff that I did like about this episode, but just there's so much just stupid with it that I couldn't get over it. My fuller thoughts are at Sound On Sight. This is why I didn't recommend that you watch it, Simon. This All right. Week. Duly noted. <laughs> The flesh I wanted to mention because I like that already just in episode three, they're doing a good job of fleshing out those supporting characters. Um, really enjoyed the the bits of flashback we got here, even if it's incredibly obvious that the character who died in the flashbacks is coming back. But still, a strong third installment for the show. Uh, another this is, this is the other besides Jin the Virgin, the other strong new fall show as far as I'm concerned. And, and I'm glad that they don't seem to be dropping the ball yet um, with episode three. Soul Survivor. It only took them three episodes to de-demon Dean. Didn't expect that. Very glad that that's out of the way, or at least appears to be. I'm really hoping it's not a larger manipulation, um, because I didn't need a season of us wondering, will Dean come back when we all know he will? Uh, So I'm hoping that something interesting and new is coming. Uh, Not sure that I think it is, but... um, I want. I th- I give them credit for for not dragging out a, that storyline for the entire season. Hopefully, there's more coming that will make it interesting. American Horror Story. Edward Mordrake. Just going to mention this one because um, I like what we get with um, the Halloween setting. I like the uh, flashback. Or the, the like again the use of that silent film device like they did in se- the, the previous season with the Seven Wonders um, flashback like film silent film reel I like what they do with it here um, and I thought this was a more successful episode than they've had in the past I'm looking forward to part two uh, even if I don't really don't need another I don't need any more musical numbers this season. American Horror Story and that's me talking. <laughs> okay, wait. I got ten minutes into this episode and I was like. <sighs> I can't do it this week, American Horror Story. What was the musical number this week? Are they doing this every week? Yeah, just about. Um, it was um, uh, It was Jessica Lange's character, Elsa, singing in the, uh, something about monsters. <laughs> uh, I don't sure have I... it on the tip of my tongue. It's the song that I used to introduce the segment, so for those who haven't heard it, that was that's what that was. I'm sure that I would know it instantly. The fact that you have no idea what it is makes perfect well, sense. Well, I knew it at the time, but I'm just not remembering it because Wednesday was a long time ago <laughs> as we record this. <laughs> um, so uh, I don't, you know, I I, I I can't remember. It's bugging me that I can't remember it, but um, I did know the song when I watched it, but it's not coming back to me. Uh, yeah, that that arc is not interesting to me at all of her as the would be Shanta's. Um, so I've. Eh. I, I, I don't need any more of that. The last show I'm going to mention here is Gotham. And the reason I'm going to mention it is, see, this is what happens if you make screeners available for shows I've even given up on. If I'm folding laundry, I will put that episode on. So I did for Gotham this week, and it's a much better episode, which is what happens if you give Donald Logue something to do. They give him a flashback, they give him a bit of an arc, and they really flesh out the character quite a bit more, uh, even if they do go back to the Cobblepot well too much. So this was definitely an improvement. Um, I doubt that it's going to be a maintained improvement, so I still will not be watching any more episodes unless they put more screeners up. Um, just thought I should give credit where it was due. And uh, speaking of, let's move to Shield uh, to say to talk about a, a hen in the wolf house. You watched this episode. 
I don't Quoi? know what came over me, but I, I don't know. I just thought I've, you know, generally speaking, when I hear people talking about how a show has gotten better that I previously dismissed, I like to give it the benefit of the doubt and give it another shot. So I watched it. And? Oh, you'd like to hear my thoughts? Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> here's the thing. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has grown into a very efficient and streamlined version of a show that I really, really strongly, viscerally dislike watching. Um, <laughs> it's still... It still feels... It's never gotten over that feeling that it's a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox of this, like, J.J. Abrams-Joss Whedon hybrid show that is neither as exciting nor as witty as it needs to be. And the character beats just feel so well-trod to me. This whole notion of, you know, Kyle MacLachlan is my evil dad. And, you know, normally I, I, I was going to want to reunite with him, but he's turned out to be really bad. So now I'm okay if we just don't even reunite because he's just so bad. Like, I've, <laughs> I've just, I've seen this all before and done better, even if it does feature Kyle MacLachlan hamming it up which we get twice this week um just none of it really clicks in an interesting way for me the whole beat of um simmons coming back and her reunion with fitz feels like a tired version of a of an angel beat really like it feels like oh we've seen this done before and better so why am well, i watching this okay. now but i have to cut cut in there because that's because you haven't seen the episodes without her. They did a really good job with Fitz in those previous episodes. This no, season. like I, I know he was seeing her as a vision and like. Yeah, but I'm saying that's one that I feel like the other stuff I'll I'll give you. We'll have a conversation about that. But that one I feel like that's several episodes worth of payoff. So if you didn't see the lead up to it, of course it's not going to have the same. But what, effect what is on interesting it. to you about them as people, like individually? What do you mean? Like the as characters? Yeah, they're fun. Which is really all I ask for this kind of a show. Okay, fair enough. I, I don't know. I, I guess to me, like, there's no... It's all surface, and even the surface parts aren't that interesting to me. So, yeah, still still totally not not my thing. And, like, sorry, one more specific thing to mention. The attempts at Joss Whedon Zingers, they need to stop doing that because they're really, really bad at it. Like, the thing with, um, with, uh, with Sky... When she makes the Ron Burgundy zing. First of all, Chloe Bennett is awful. I'm sorry. She's just terrible. And the Ron Burgundy zing is just, oh, oh, it was painful to watch that. Like that, this is not a show that should attempt wit ever. Yeah. I will say that I had a lot of fun with this episode. I, I can, I continue to think that it's really improved since last season. I actively look forward to watching it now, which is not something that was the case before um kyle mclaughlin is a blast uh really having it up but that's i mean i think it's very appropriate for this show and yes the the stuff with skies like oh i don't ever want to see my father like that's ridiculous and contrived and stupid but um you know and we know it's gonna become undone you know at some pro at some point but i do like and it's the emotional center of this entire episode no, not for me it's not no okay. Well, it feels like it's supposed to be. No, by far the center of this episode for me is everything we get with Simmons and uh, what's going on, you know, her cover being blown and, uh, you know, and what we get with uh, with Raina is way more interesting to me than what me because 
yeah, that stuff. I'm more invested in Kyle MacLachlan wanting to see his daughter than I am with uh, everything about his daughter wanting to see him. Certainly. So, like, this was not... Maybe that's the difference in the episode for us. Also, I gotta mention Adrienne Palicki. I'm so glad to see her on the show. She's a blast in this. Eh, she seems like a pretty one-dimensional lady badass to me. She's a lot of fun. The actresses <laughs> and performance is a lot of fun. Uh, the, I like what, you know, the, what they're giving her to do. I, I guess part of what it is for me is that when I'm watching this show, I want it to be entertaining. I want there to be some comic booky kind of stuff. I want there to be su- uh, sufficient, you know, character bantery kind of things. And that's about it. I'm not looking for, you know, greatness out of this. I'm looking for diverting and, you know, bubblegum. I'm looking for popcorn with this show. And they've been able to give me popcorn this season. They struggled with that until Winter Soldier, basically, last year. And having a consistent foe has really worked well. Sidelining Ward for most of the episodes, most of each episode has worked well. Uh, giving Ian DeCastiger anything to do has worked well. Um, and really, and fleshing out the, and adding to the cast is another thing that has worked well. So um, as far as I'm concerned, it's still greatly improved, but greatly improved from not very good show is still, you know, yay, I, I'm glad that I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I just, I, maybe, I mean, I'm still working this out, admittedly. Maybe I just need a hint of subtext in my silly genre shows. Because to me, even a little bit of that goes a long way. And S.H.I.E.L.D. just doesn't feel like it's even interested in that. I just don't get anything else out of I mean, DeCastiker is a great actor. I mean, we saw he was so good on the fades. And I just don't, I don't get any of the spark that we got off him in the phase that, that, you know, I was, I, I was, I was hoping for some of that from him and he just doesn't seem to be getting a whole lot to do. Yeah. Well, I think he's getting a lot more. Um, I'm hoping that they're going to continue to grow on that and uh, we'll have to see, but for you, you only have shield to draw from. So are you going to, again, Oh God, I guess that means it wins. Are you going to plead the fifth Jesus. again? Yeah, I'm going to do that. Uh, I'm going to give it to, uh, I'm going to give it to the flash with an honorable, you know, tip of the hat to arrow. Cause I did enjoy that episode quite a bit as well. Um, that'd be two in a row for the CW. Sleepy hollow is fun too, but yeah, I'll give it to, um, I'll give it to the flash. So yeah, that's, uh, that's two in a row for the CW. Well done. Good for them. And they didn't even need abs. <laughs> now we'll take a break and we'll come back with our weekend drama.
This week in drama, we're going to talk a little parenthood. The scale of affection is fluid. Then The Affair 3, The Good Wife, Old Spice, and Boardwalk Empire, uh, which had its series finale, El Dorado. First up is Parenthood, and uh, this one was a very max-heavy episode. I enjoyed, you know, every I always enjoy when uh, we spend more time with that character. The performance is still one of my favorite things about the show. Um, this is uh, the, Was this your first episode checking in the season since the premiere? It was. And? And? Uh, you'd like to hear my thoughts? I'd like to hear your um, thoughts. The, I mean, the Max stuff is obviously great. Uh, ever since, I think it was Seppenwald drew the comparison between Dylan and, and a young Jared Leto, I, I can't unsee that now, mm-hmm. um, which has been a, a fun bit of cognitive dissonance. But um, the way that she that she calls him Asperger's is, is hugely irritating to me, and I hope that she stops soon. Otherwise, I'm just going to hate her. Um, and I don't think they mean for us to. That's a little, that's a little bit weird. Uh, what I'm confused about is the stuff with Crosby because it feel after talking about it with you, like maybe what they're going for is that he's so distressed because he is having difficulty being a good provider for his family. And I understand the idea that if that's what your identity is cut up in, and then that gets jeopardized, that's a difficult thing for a man approaching middle age to deal with. Um, but just in the context of this episode, it felt like it could be any number of things, and he's just having a general uh, sort of collapse that isn't being addressed right away. And I, I mean, that's potentially more interesting. But uh, I, I mean, I don't know. Where do you think they're going with the whole Crosby thing? It seems like this st- this anxiety or this um, angst uh, started with Zeke's surgery. And uh, in the hospital room and then just got tied up very much with Oliver Rome and, you know, finding out basically that because he didn't get this Oliver Rome signed to a contract, basically the label's going to fold and they're screwed um, and the luncheonette could close. That's that's what I'm reading between the lines to see, because they I agree they haven't made it particularly clear. And his conversation with um, with Zeke at the bar is what underlines that for me and he's certainly he's acting out um in a big way and i'm just mostly hoping that they're not going to retread some of the other ground they've done uh previously about him just like freaking out about i'm getting older and mortality is highlighted for me because of my dad and then i've become this guy in the suburbs in the minivan and i can't even do that because i lost you know i i made our business fail or whatever especially because they keep showing adam um and having a very natural place at the school so that if the Mm -hmm. luncheonette folds or something adam can easily you know go there uh so that you know that that sort of is what it feels like they're doing but yeah i agree it's it's too nebulous It, it almost feels like they're going for this thing that they totally can't deal with where crosby becomes uncomfortable with traditional gender or nuclear family roles and it's like i want out of this entire system and no parenthood can't handle that conversation yeah so uh, especially not in its final season so yeah there's there's the germ of a more interesting show that is just off in the distance somewhere but yeah the the stuff with max is good the stuff with crosby is at least interesting and um, nothing else was offensive. So I'm going to call it in the pro section. Yeah, I think they're doing a good job with the Joel and Julia stuff, all things considered. I like that they aren't just making her new boyfriend a jerk or something. Um, 
I, it does feel like though that 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 this does feel like a thing that's going to be stretched out all season, and then she's going to make a decision. Um, it'd be nice if it didn't feel inevitable as a season finale decision or series finale decision. Yes, it would be nice, wouldn't it? Let's move on for now, though, to the affair uh, three, the third episode. I, I we're going to keep this one pretty quick because I feel like we're on the same page about maybe getting a little uh, tired of the <laughs> structure already. Here's my issue that I'm having with the affair right now. It's only episode three, and while both halves of the story we're seeing are clearly biased in favor of the person telling the story. Dominic West's characters is so biased that I can't trust anything about it. So he, he casts himself in such a flattering light that everything, I just, I don't believe a moment of it with her. She does some of that, but it's not nearly as extreme as it is with him. Uh, at least for me. And maybe that's just because Dominic West is so good at playing sleazy. I mean, I get it. How much of that is because she uh, is, uh, is a local who works in a diner and how much of it is because he is an author who is paid to be kind of up his own ass? I mean, a, a big, one of his major scenes involves meeting up with a potential publisher and it kind of makes sense that that scene is full of big like you know this people say you know you have an honest face like it's yes it is uh it could be read as being not trustworthy then again it could just be because neither person is being particularly genuine so it's tricky to i i totally get where you're coming from but it's it's tricky to make that determination especially so early because i don't know i just feel like his world is so much more full of bullshit than hers is just by the fact of his occupation or pseudo occupation since he doesn't seem to be doing any actual writing yeah but i mean even just that scene even just that lunch uh the guy just keeps complimenting him like not actively complimenting him but saying things in such a way that just the tone you know he's like oh i'll be humble i'll be humble yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i just you know i'm gonna dismiss all this praise and not take it seriously look at how charming i'm being it's like it's just i don't a single and and the the nearly identical dialogue he gives himself when she comes on to him hardcore. No, I can't. I can't. I'm married. I love my family. It's like, <laughs> I'm sorry, but well, and come on. Again, like how much of that feels unbelievable because of the character? How much of it feels unbelievable because we were just so familiar with that trope? Yeah, both. But I'm mean, saying either way, it's a problem. Right. I th- That's totally fair. I mean, I think my bigger problem is just damn they need to start shaking up this formula because the his her half and half i think it was it was great for, it was actually fantastic for a pilot totally acceptable for a second episode by the third episode i'm starting to feel like we need to start shaking this up boys because or at least if you're going to keep it we need to start doing it we need to at least within the that framework we need to start shaking it up i've no i noticed from the preview for next week that the flash forwards shake, get mixed up a little bit which has some promise. Uh, but this whole notion of let's see a little bit more of his or her and, and then let's get a little, a few little tidbits from the future. Like she's got a kid now and there was a wedding and some more hints about who the victim might be. But like, no, we can't keep doing that every week. That's going to get infuriating very quickly. It's kind of already there for me. 
<laughs> but I don't care enough about it to be infuriated. And and the bigger yeah. problem for me, even maybe than all of this, is just the extent to which they're wasting more tyranny. Because every time she gets to do something, it's just a breath of fresh air. It's just like, oh, I love you, more tyranny. You're so good and so natural. And you know, she's just a very welcome presence on the show. Um, but she gets she's getting like a handful of lines each week. I mean, all the non Ruth Wilson and Dominic West characters. Um, except for, you know, with a couple little exceptions, John Doman is such a great son of a bitch. And um, Joshua Jackson's been getting quite a bit to do. But yeah, beyond that, like pretty much everyone's being wasted. And this this effort to bring in like local politics is also not feeling particularly nuanced. So yeah, come on, The Affair. You can do better. And like at some point we're going to DVD shelf in treatment, which I think is a such an interesting have you seen any of in treatment i've seen no in treatment but i look forward to somebody requesting it at some point it is such an interesting show especially in the first season and like i, I really love the idea of shows that play with format and find new ways to do things so yeah i i need you i need y'all to rally people at the <laughs> affair because this i you've got so much better in you i can feel it oh i can't i can't resist that transition uh, transition uh the good wife old spice they do have so much better in them. And they have had so much better in them. It's not like it's a terrible episode, just for the good one. By no means. But you know what I find really entertaining is, I, I've read only a handful of reviews for this, but and I've read your assignment over at Sound Out Sight, but everyone's really, like even just on Twitter, the the general reaction I saw was, this episode was weird. <laughs> it's a weird episode. I mean... And not like good wife weird. No. There's a few reasons it's weird. First of all, you we get what I counted as four plot lines, which even the ones that involve some of the same characters don't really intersect at all. One of those plot lines <laughs> involves uh, Carrie Preston and Kyle MacLachlan going at each other uh, like a 1940s cartoon, uh, and it's just and involving you know Call Me Maybe quite a lot, which they even acknowledge is a dated reference. Uh, yeah, a lot of weird going on. It d definitely some good stuff, and I, I, I know that some people really seem to hate Grace as a character for some reason, which I don't get. She's awesome. But all, all the stuff with Alicia and Grace was fantastic. Yeah, and though except for one thing, and that's at the end, the Bible study group. I'm sorry, that Bible study group cares way too much that her mom is now listening. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I kind of buy the idea that you have this famous woman who is uh, notorious for a lot of reasons. If you're a, uh, if you're a famous figure and you're an atheist, that could be kind of a big deal in certain cultures and certain circles. So I, I could kind of get that. Like, yeah, it was a bit of a stretch, but not like a deal breaking amount for me. It was just I was watching that scene. Really, like, okay, but this is somebody that. Like, this is one of your members' parents, and all you're doing, you're just going around the circle being like, yay, it's the best thing in the world that this person who is prominent in Chicago politics uh, and has very has no national presence. It's just like, do they care about politics? I've gotten zero sense that, I, there's no sense that Grace cares about politics at all, and they're no tangential to her, so they shouldn't care about politics either. So it's well, there's no, there's, it's tricky because there's no, there's no real life analog for Alicia. I mean, the closest would be 
Hillary Clinton, but but Alicia's not actually on a national stage. So you have to feel like she has like a prominence somewhere between Elliot Spitzer's wife and Hillary Clinton. Yeah, but what I'm saying, though, is that for this group, she should be significant far more in the context of, oh, she's Grace's mom. We've probably met her a few times from doing Bible study at Grace's house. Then, oh, it's the second coming. A candidate in a Illinois election is now said she is listening. I I get that. There's way bigger tonal issues with this episode, though. Yeah, fair enough. But the rest of that episode, the rest of that storyline, though, I did really like. I, I, you know, because basically it felt like they were overplaying how upset Grace was going to be there. There, I felt like they were trying too hard so that she would be upset with her mom, and then it would lead to struggle or strife down the line. Um, Let's talk about for a moment just that fabulous end of episode um, uh, scene in, in in the offices. With Alicia taking Will's office? Yeah, it was good. I mean, I saw some people who were, like, overwhelmed with emotion at that sequence. Uh, I thought it was fine. I really liked it. And I, not much more than that. It didn't, I wasn't, uh, you know, I didn't, it didn't get dusty for me or anything, but it, you know, just really highlights the way this show has, it's, you know, you talked about it last week in your review, such a fantastic series memory, and while I was disappointed that they were going to be moving into Lockhart Gardner's offices, being able to have that context of Will around Alicia just moving forward and being able to have her glance across her desk and and you like have, you know, meaningful glances with Diane, that's just that's gonna pay just so many dividends. However, I do feel bad for Carrie, you know, getting getting the short straw once again. Was I the only one who thought that that lady's line, that that girl he brought home about her line about being turned on by gang rape was actually the weirdest thing in a very strange episode? I missed it. Like What? Yeah. How did you miss that? Yeah. Well, I think like, I think the phone rang or something. And so I didn't hear that line of dialogue because I was so weird. I was very puzzled when I read that in your review. Uh, Anyway, I also have to mention, I'm sorry, 10 minutes from Indiana. No. No, the good life. No, I'm so glad I'm ignorant of U.S. geography because that would have never occurred to me. Oh God, it's in that is ridiculous. That is just like just no. And he lives in a good part of town. He has a bunch of money. His apartment is nice. We've seen it. So even if the new firm is in a bad part of town or a cheaper part of town, his apartment isn't. So this notion that he lives ten minutes from Indiana is just. That's, like, offensively bad. Yeah. Uh, it just to... We should get through this quicker. I, I continue to really enjoy the Linda Levin character. I love that she's just this, you know... she She's a regular person doing her job, and that makes her an asshole to everyone else. And I continue to really enjoy that. She's great, because she's... That's a, she's great precisely because she's not an asshole. Because she's just trying to do her job. And, uh, yep. you know, and she's just, you know, she's caught up in all the stuff and she's fair in her assessments. And, you know, she's not like when she first shows up, you think she, it's going to be like this. She's going to be this bitchy person who's there to screw over Carrie to create drama. But that's not what happens. And, you know, I think they do a good job with it here as well. And um, I just really hope that they don't have uh, Carrie mess it up because so he needs to see Kalinda. I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> having the judge determine that Kalinda can't see Carrie at all was just another step of how are they going to take 16 whole episodes to fully write Kalinda out 
no clue. But they better have, they do need to have a Kalinda and Alicia scene before she goes. Because I they don't really do. If yeah, if they don't, it'll confirm everyone's very widely held suspicions. I don't care. You're professionals. This yep. is what the show needs. Like it, it needed them to interact more than it did the show. I think that relationship has suffered. Uh, it just doesn't really make sense based on what they did. But um, fine, you want to play like irreparably repaired. They're on good terms, but it can never be the same. Fine, whatever that works. But she can't leave the show without dying, if she without having a, another scene with Alicia. Definitely. Uh, I can't leave this review without getting your opinion on the mclaughlin preston romance <laughs> i thought it was hilarious um very creepy so creepy uh from him <laughs> he's like I, I saw it described somewhere as pepe Le Pew. he's full-on pepe Le Pew. um that was me that was, I was you? me that was you well done sorry i, I described him as a, as a how did i exactly say that a cross between pepe Le Pew and i wanted to say a david e kelly character but it was something else anyway it, yeah it was yeah. It was something. The fact that that works on her is just like... Ugh. But it was the zaniness. While it didn't fit in this episode uh, at all, I did enjoy it as its own sort of like, this is a different show we're watching right now. This is part of her Blue Skies comedy on, uh, you know, hour-long show on USA. Uh, right. But in that context, it did work for me. Yeah. All right. That's fair. Okay. Let's move on to our last show of the week, and that's Boardwalk Empire El Dorado, the series finale. We're going to keep this one on the shorter side because uh, I'm sure at some point we will do a, a DVD shelf for the whole series. So we're just going to keep this conversation to this episode and, and maybe this season um, rather than reflecting on the entire series as a whole. Uh, what did you think of El Dorado? Did it work for you? Uh, I think as, as a series finale, it works perfectly fine. Uh, it's got some really fantastic visual m moments, particularly the opening somewhat marred by the score which you pointed out the similarity to tng and then i couldn't unhear it for the rest of the goddamn episode so thank you you're welcome that's actually Mahler one uh but here's the thing guys yes it's Mahler one yes Mahler one came before star trek and tng however when it's a tv show and you use only those four those four notes from it that horn call with the strings underneath i'm sorry if you just stop there it's TV. I associate that that bit of music on TV with Star Trek. And I'm a professional right. classical musician who loves to play Mahler 1. So I'm sure a lot of people watching were thinking Star Trek and not Mahler 1. And as soon as you pointed it out, I was thinking Star Trek for at least three sequences in this episode. Anyway, as a series finale, I think it, it works just fine in a typically Boardwalk empire forced way. You have six or seven scenes of characters t talking, reminiscing about the past and talking about how, you know, this is the end of a relationship or like being very open about the fact that this is a series finale. They may as well lean in and wink at the camera. But I think in a in an unsubtle boardwalk empire kind of way, a lot of this worked. Gretchen Maul's last scene was a bruiser. Um, this the last scene with Margaret was fantastic. There are several actors from the show that need to get snapped up immediately for major roles, and Kelly McDonald is absolutely one of them. Uh, Stephen Graham is definitely one of them too, and we got we got a scene with him and Capone's son. I don't think we've had one of those since season three, and those are always reliable. And I think they've been missing in terms of helping to flesh out that character and not have him just be this violent buffoon. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was there was nothing offensive in this episode. Boardwalk Empire went out 
the way that it lived as a almost too tasteful sort of old school prestige drama with some interesting storytelling issues that will be fascinating to discuss in an eventual DVD shelf. I mean, it's definitely a, a very good finale. Series finales, again, we've said it about pilots in second episodes, but series finales are also very hard. They do a good job here. Um, and there are certain moments that are more successful than others, at least for me. And that the moment of, of Nucky seeing television was really effective for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love that they made time for that, that they put that in when theoretically they shouldn't, you know, have time for that in the finale but it was you know what a great way to show the end of an era or the beginning of a new era um yeah so i thought that and it was just odd enough and if that it fits so well with his mental state uh yeah it was really that was a really nice touch uh the aside from the star trek thing which was very distracting (laughs) for me as well um yeah what i find found with this episode was that while um, you know, and I think it has also a lot of the season. I I don't begrudge anyone who's loved this season or loves this show, uh, because I'm sure there are plenty of shows that I love that uh, they don't, or that you know, where, where it's just you don't have the same kind of place in it in your heart for it. Because um, I've tried to really get into uh, Boardwalk Empire, but I just I can't get away from watching this episode. Going, yes, it's very well executed. It's so well executed. The performances are very good. Um, it's it's gorgeous to look at, but I spent the entire episode knowing what was going to happen, and then it all happened. And um, so they, they set up throughout the course of the season, oh, look, there's Jillian. We already know that he's going to give her to the Commodore. And now let's watch exactly what we know to have happened happen in exactly the way we think it's going to happen. Uh, there was no suspense. There was no, like slight nuances to it that maybe we didn't already know about. And so just like the flashback structure of it, you know, having, having Naki show up at the, at the asylum, but he's too late. She's already gone under the knife. That was really potent for me, but the stuff with the flashbacks, just like it's, it's good as, as itself, but, um, and it's certainly, it's, you know, well done, but as a finale, it just didn't have the impact for me that I think it did for a lot of people. I mean, we're setting up a dichotomy here where, like, do, do, do series like this have a need to be, to be giving you these, you know, these jolts of surprise? Do there, does there need to be a twist or is it just enough for them to, to, to sort of, you know, satisfy long-term fans with a visual depiction of things previously only described you know, will that have the impact intended without providing an, a, a twist, uh, an additional twist of the knife? That's a whole other question. There's also, if, if you know, Gretchen Maul hadn't described that scene to us so heart-wrenchingly only last season, then, yeah. then, you know, the depiction we get here may have had more of an impact on me, but... I already heard all of this when she was talking mm-hmm. um, last season with the, the guy who turned out to be a Pinkerton, um, and, and and she broke my heart then. So now it's like I've already experienced this. I've already processed this. The, the thing is, uh, there's so much that's weird about Boardwalk Empire, but what I was really overwhelmed by in this episode is that the story of the Thompsons and the Darmides, with some recasting, I think could be 
would be a, an incredible one season miniseries. And like, forget historical ties, just like the details of that story would be such a great traditional melodrama. And to you could execute that in like a masterpiece theater kind of way, and it could just gut you repeatedly over the course of six or nine or twelve episodes. But that stuff is is you know here in the in this messy mix of you know gangster stories set over the course of thirty years or whatever, and a lot of that just just feels totally unmoored from the rest of it, and it makes you realize just how messy this show is, which is weird because its length, you know, you're talking about a show with a relatively contained length. And if you think about what it's done over the course of its run, it's kind of a huge mess. Like, what was the point of the bulk of season three? Like, you know, which was fun. It was, you know, Jip Presetti was a fun villain, et cetera. But it, that whole arc added nothing to our understanding of Nucky or the Thompsons or the Darmides or Capone, et cetera, et cetera. Like, what was, what was the plan here? Yeah. I mean, even in this finale, I didn't need to see Narcisse again. Nope. Why is, I mean, he's there because we, you know, we like Jeffrey Wright, but I mean, there's no need for that scene. There's, there's, when you look, if, especially with this last season, them wanting to structure the series as being bookended with uh, the Thompsons and, and the Darmides, which is clear that's, you know, what they're going for this season. And, you know, they're, by having that be their approach in the series finale so heavily, that's making a statement about the series. Okay, that's fine, but that's presenting a very different show than what the show has been for quite a while. Yeah. I mean, from what I understand about the way the show was pitched and some things that happened along its production route and the way that it's wrapped up, I'd be curious to read interviews with Terrence winter and even thinking about his tenure on the Sopranos. There is some fascinating scholarship to be done on what boardwalk boardwalk empire tells us about the state of traditional prestige television in 2014. I'll just say it, it brought us a lot of great performances, some really memorable characters, um, a lot of great visuals, some fantastic production design, and gra- I would say groundbreaking set design, and other things that are definitely worth talking about. Uh, did it cohere into a totally satisfying whole for me or a lot of other people? No, but uh, it definitely had a right to exist. It's taught me the names of many very talented actors who I look forward to seeing in other projects. Uh, so if nothing else, there's there's that. And uh, hey, if based on uh, some of the casting I'm seeing in different uh, TV shows and, and movies, the the answer is be on Boardwalk Empire, and then they realize you're an amazing actor, and then you get an awesome movie. So uh, that's you know there are far worse things out there. Um, and uh, just being aware of Michael Shannon and having my eyes open to Gretchen Mall and uh, getting getting to see, you know, I really love what we got with Margaret this season. She's so much fun in this finale, you know. So I mean, Kelly McDonald obviously is fantastic. So so many of these different actors that uh, I was less familiar with. Um, if, if nothing else, it's been a worthwhile journey just for that, as far as I'm concerned. Yes, and keep in mind you've only seen the last two seasons, but I've seen every single episode of Boardwalk Empire. And, you know, from the very beginning in back, back even before it premiered and everyone was freaking out because, oh, Terrence Winter from The Sopranos, Martin Scorsese is directing the pilot, uh, Steve Buscemi gets a serious lead role, and it's, it's always struggled to feel like more than the sum of its parts and often came up, came across feeling like less. And it's always felt like this relic from an older model of prestige television. So I'll, I'll be curious to, to read what people have to say about it when it comes to, you know, end of the year wrap-ups and 
uh, retrospectives and things like that. Yeah. Well, uh, on that note, I, I don't. I feel like I don't have anything to add. Um, to be continued in an eventual DVD shelf. Um, what wins your week in drama? Oh, you know what? You're right. Series finales are hard to do, and I can't imagine anyone complaining seriously about Boardwalk, so I'll give it to them. Yeah, I'm going to give it to Boardwalk Empire as well. Um, Boardwalk Empire, you are lucky the good, we- the good wife took a week off. Uh, <laughs> but it was, a good, it was a good episode. It was a strong episode. So with that, let's go to a few show notes. You can find a post-up for this episode at soundoutside.org, where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's TV. You can always email us, theteleverse at gmail.com. We're up in Facebook, where you can you know, leave, leave us a comment, like the page to follow the goings-on at Soundoutside TV. You can also uh, find us in iTunes, where we have an M4A chaptered feed, an MP3 unchaptered feed. And, of course, we're both up on Twitter. I am at the Televerse and Simon, you are? At Sucker Howl. And what is our question of the week? Uh, well, I feel like it's it's got to be Boardwalk related because a whole lot of people watch it. And I'm sure a lot of listeners do, too. Um, I mean, now that, you know, Kelly McDonald's a free agent, Michael Shannon is theoretically a free agent. People like Jack Houston have been. I mean, I, I, I guess which Boardwalk alumni would you most like to see get their own show? That depends on the show. Well, you can feel free to con- to create the pitch. I still vote for Kelly McDonald, Michael Shannon, True Detective Season 3. Boom! <laughs> um, it's hard to argue with that. That would be fabulous. <laughs> it's hard to but, argue with that because it's right. Well, yeah, except that I feel like I feel like we need Gretchen Mullen there. Because I have this feeling she's not... I, I hope to be wrong. I just don't know that of the various people that have made an impression, I feel like she's one of the more underappreciated. Probably, yes. You know, astonishing to me. Um, I also really just, you know, I could watch a total spinoff of just, uh, you know, Margaret and uh, Kennedy get into hijinks for the next 20 years, too. Mm, Um, Also plausible. It'd be nice to see um, somebody like Michael K. Williams in a completely different role. So I, so we go from The Wire to Borrow Empire to I wonder what's next for him. Um, so, okay. I'm going to limit myself. You already have dibs on Kelly McDonald and Michael Shannon. So I'm not going to allow myself either of them. I'm going to go Gretchen Maul. Um, I haven't seen the Stuhlbarg stuff as much, so uh, I, I don't have that to draw. Oh, I totally forgot about Stuhlbarg. That guy fucking rules. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go Jeffrey Wright and mm-hmm. Gretchen Maul. Top of the Lake season two. <laughs> well, we can throw them in there with Elizabeth Moss. Um, I, I, like, I feel like let's put them on one of those, um, you know, after Justified gets finished shows. That we keep coming up with. So, you know, put him on, put them as, uh, you know, I'm not good at creating the pitches, but like, I, you know how I want that Romy Rosemont and, uh, uh, Steven Root show. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to, there's a few of those that I want, uh, that I, I could, I would totally follow the two of them. Uh, let's, let's, let's have, let's have them play the good guys, right? Let's have Gretchen Maul playing not crazy. And, uh, you know, so let's make them, maybe, maybe they're the good guys and Stephen Root and Romy Rosemont are the villains. Mm. Put them all together. I don't know. I don't know. 
I, I need to think about it more, but I, I like this question. I look forward to the pitches we're going to get from some of our listeners. Please uh, do your do do your uh, the, your very best. I would love to see uh, what you guys can come up with. And on that note, uh, we'll wrap things up. We'll take a break. Uh, coming up next, we have our uh, latest installment of Steve Procopi's Horror Picks. Um, so we'll be back right after this to talk with uh, Capone from Medical News, Mr. Steve Procopi, about Are You in the House Alone and the Initiation of Sarah. Tell me something. What have the girls told you about Phi Epsilon Delta so far? Hmm? Only that there's some mysterious feud going on between ANS and PED. Oh, that old thing. You know, that feud was going on when I was an undergraduate at this college. I think Phi Epsilon Delta should take its rightful place in this college again. And I think the ritual will have no meaning with you. I don't understand. Well, Sarah, forgive me, but I know certain things about you. You are one of the very special people. Dear, you are gifted, lucky. With you, the ritual would have no meaning. Yes. Uh, I could show you how to use your powers. I don't know what you're talking about. I have to go. Oh, it's all right. We'll talk again. What is this? Somebody left it in my locker. Who? I don't know. Well, look, are you sure it's for you? I mean, there's no name on it. I'm sure. Okay, okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Look, it's just that I don't know what to make of it. I mean, maybe it's just some stupid joke. No, no, I don't think it's a stupid joke. There was another note. Another note? Yeah, I, I think somebody's trying to scare me. And I think we should try to figure out who. I know, but I've tried. Look, Gail, there must be some clues. Now, who's got a sick sense of humor that would think this is funny? He doesn't mean it to be funny. It isn't a joke. Hello? 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 We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kalsik, joined as ever by Simon Howell. And it's it's Halloween week, which means it is time for another installment of Steve Procopi's Horror Picks. And here to, to scare me once again, at least that's the theory. We'll get into how successful that may or may not have been in a little bit, uh, is Capone from Any Cool News, Mr. Steve Procopi. Steve, welcome back. Hey, thank you. This might be the one, though, that, that doesn't break you the way I'd hoped it would. I apologize <laughs> for that. Well, that's okay. This week we'll be talking about uh, two different TV movies from 1978, Are You in the House Alone? And uh, first up, The Initiation of Sarah. Um, So why did you pick these two, Steve? Well, honestly, the reason I picked them is because I had, uh, they're part of a, you can buy them now. They're recently released, I think last year, uh, Scream Factory put them out as a double feature on one disc. Um, Probably the only thing linking them is that they both came out in the same year, I think they're both made by the same production company, although they, I think they ultimately aired on different networks. Um, but I just, I just wanted to sort of dive into something that was a little older than, than some of the things we've been talking about. And, uh, 
I had never, I actually had never seen either one of them before this. So, uh, this was definitely not recommended to me or, nor would I probably recommend them as, as good, as decent Halloween fare, but the titles were intriguing, if nothing else. <laughs> well, uh, I had not heard of either of them. I recognized several of the cast from, from both of them, but sure. I was, yeah. I was unfamiliar. The initiation of Sarah has been remade. Uh, it was remade in 2006 yes. for ABC family, uh, starring Summer Glau as one of the leads in that. Um, but I don't, think the other one has been remade though there is a tv show right called it are you in the house alone oh i don't know that's new new to me i could be wrong about that i may be uh, speaking out of turn but it is based on a novel uh, uh simon had you heard of either of these two i had not heard of either of these before at all and capone slash steve you're right that neither is particularly great especially if you're looking for actual halloween fair i think the way that they're most interesting is in terms of thinking about them in the wider late 70s horror landscape, because you can guess the movies, even just by their premises, you can guess the movies that they are trying to sort of ape or sort of go for the same subject matter as, and they have different approaches to how to handle that subject matter in a TV-friendly fashion, and one of them does a better job at it than the other one. Well, uh, I'm not as familiar with 70s horror as I'm sure either of you are. I was going to say as I'd like to be, except I'm about as familiar with 70s horror as I want to be, honestly. Um, but uh, but Steve, what are yeah. the films that come to mind for the initiation of Sarah? Well, it's just just Carrie. I mean, that's pretty much that's mm -hmm. pretty much it. It's yep. it's got some Carrie elements. I, I've even heard it referred to as Carrie goes to college. So. Um, it, it, it's, it's not as, I mean, obviously it's not as satisfying as that. Um, but there are some really interesting people in it. I mean, of the two films, I think this one has a cast that at the time, a lot of these people were kind of at their peak and, uh, you know, you've got Kay Lenz, you've got Morgan Fairchild, uh, you've got, uh, I'm forgetting the, uh, Morgan Brittany, who was like a staple. I think she was on Dallas for a while, but she was also... Seems like she was on the Love Boat every other month. So, I mean, she she would they were just these are kind of staples. Uh, and then of course Shelley Winters, who at this point had won two Oscars. So uh, it was kind of great seeing her drunk and and having some fun in this in this film. But uh, yeah, I mean C Carrie's the big one for for Sarah, I think. And I don't even think they tried to hide. This was about two years after Carrie, I think. So. Well, let's yeah. dive in with uh, the initiation of Sarah. For those who haven't seen it, uh, uh, Steve, what's a what's a quick plot synopsis? It's about a girl that sort of has latent psychic powers uh, who goes to college with her. She's a little mousy and, and plain, and she's got sort of a prettier uh, sister, and the two of them rush a sororities together, and, of course, one ends up in the popular one and one ends up in the, the kind of outcast sorority, and... The two sororities have a rivalry and the bad girls go after the outcast girls. And you can sort of see how that's leading towards something resembling the prom scene in Carrie, uh, except it doesn't even it doesn't even get that interesting. Uh, and then it takes a weird left turn at the end when you sort of find out where that her powers are not uh, within herself. They're sort of supernatural in, in origin. So it's a. I don't know. It's a it's a strange it's a strange mix of uh, and none of it being in any way scary either. Uh, 
I think psychic powers in any movie is one of the laziest ways you can go in horror. It uh, doesn't mean it doesn't work sometimes, but it really just means scowling a little bit and then some somebody jumps backwards to look like or some something moves in the room or I mean it's it's you don't have to the zero effects budget it's real easy to do um, but yeah that's that sort of sums up sums up Sarah I think yeah for me this one uh, it's it's certainly uh, interesting or entertaining I should say for some of of the elements of the time certainly apparently when at one point Morgan Fairchild while wearing a like a a darker orange sweater. Uh, gets pushed into a fountain, and that, that was scandalous because a like a person wearing a sweater, the sweater got wet, and that's just <laughs> so over the top and unacceptably lewd. Um, there was a scandal in '78, but um, I kept because I knew about that beforehand, so I kept waiting her to for her to be wearing like a white T-shirt or something. But no, thick orange sweater. It doesn't help that no one in the film seems to own a bra. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And I had to keep reminding myself this was on TV because it's just a whole lot of clingy things that, yeah. I mean, but there's even a shot at the very beginning when the the two sisters are are leaving home and they're both wearing like really inappropriate garb for television, especially. But maybe that was just the thing. I don't know. I'm just glad Shelly Winters was wearing a bra. I'm pretty sure she was. Um, but uh, for me, I, there's there's things to enjoy here, and I, I think we can get into some of the the subtext or some of the other stuff that's going on that could have been interesting, but then maybe wasn't. Uh, but I just I have trouble with just the initial part of this story because I don't care about sororities, and my initial <laughs> reaction to oh the one sorority is full of bitches and the other <laughs> sorority is full of creepers is I don't know live in the dorms. <laughs> they treat the dorms like. Like, they're living in dumpsters, almost. They're just like, oh, no, we don't want to go to the dorms. Well, I mean, Simon, you had you had a different college experience. Uh, did you do dorms? Would you have been terrified of these dorms? Uh, I mean, I'm frat- fraternities and sororities are completely terrifying to me. I think they've got great horror potential. But um, as for dorms, I mean, you're right. Dorms in this movie are treated like... There, if they, if if they was, in, if you were thinking about it in terms of birth control or like birthing options, dorms are the abortion option. You don't, you can barely even say them out loud, and they're, they're just never, they're, it's never an option to live in the dorms. Like at one point, one of them is like, oh, I guess maybe I could live in the door, and it's just, it's immediately dismissed as an option. Um, what I find hilarious, most hilarious about this movie is the way it depicts college in general. Um, I mean. You would think for a, for a film set in college, you would have maybe more than one scene in a classroom. And the reason that you don't get more than one scene in the classroom is because apparently nobody who worked on this movie attended university. <laughs> because the one scene in a class is fucking hilarious. Yeah, I laughed out loud a lot. They get that ink, that assignment <laughs> to, like, think about how psychology works and... Uh, <laughs> How you could be a you know a dual person and write about it for Thursday, <laughs> like no reading assignment, no compare it to our texts, no draw from philosophers, just you know write about duality. It, it would have been an embarrassing assignment for a middle school student. Yeah, both yeah. both of the films this week or this this time around have classroom scenes that would never happen. The way that they happen in these movies. <laughs> uh, we'll get to the photography. Yeah, yeah, I, and the soon. other one's so much worse. Um, 
the uh, I, I one of the a couple. I mean, I I kind of as the film went on and I got less and less interested in it, I kind of started looking around at some of the people that were involved. And and I'm not to say that there aren't some interesting performances. I actually think Kay Lenz is one of the great sort of unsung heroes of of this period of filmmaking. Um, uh, she didn't make a ton of really big movies, but she was just sort of always around. I mean, she was in Clint Eastwood's first film, Breezy, which I highly recommend. Um, but but Todd Holland is listed has a story credit on this. He's the guy who wrote or co-wrote Fright Night and Child's Play, and he adapted Thinner by Stephen King. Um, it's uh, I also there were a couple faces in it that I couldn't quite place, so I had to do a little bit of digging. And I don't know if you guys even recognized um, the the woman who played, and she's probably the worst thing in the film. The woman that played Mouse. Oh God. Um, is is t- I, I think it's pronounced. Actually, I don't know. It's T I S A. Tisa. Her first name. Tisa Farrow, who's Mia Farrow's sister, and she she's only been in a couple movies, but she was sort of notoriously in this uh, Fulci horror film called zombie. That's like one of the most legendary zombie oh, films yeah. ever made. And that she made it like right after this too. So they, they were right on top of each other. And then, but more importantly, um, the woman that played, and I'm forgetting the character's name, but once we first go into the, into the uh, creeper sorority, the girl who sort of got her legs kicked over the chair, who's just kind of like, mm-hmm. uh, and then ends up getting them chairs to sit down as she plays, um, Roger Sterling's first wife on Mad Men. I couldn't uh, place it, but you're right. Yeah, uh, I recognized her. But yeah, back then I, I was bugging the crap out of me because she looks exactly the same. Um, is it Talia Balsam? Uh, might be. Yeah. yeah. That sounds right. I think so. So yeah, I, I was sort of having, enjoying placing faces. And like, I actually think that Morgan Fairchild, who at the time was like the queen of TV bitches, uh, she, she does a decent job here. Um, it, it's kind of when you get into some of the lesser characters and, and, and Shelly Winters is just abominable in this part. And, and it, there's a scene where she's uh, reciting an incantation of, of a source. And it sounds like she's reading her laundry list. Like it really, she could not care less. She's so uh, above what she's doing and she doesn't care. And she's there to cash a check that I can't imagine was that much money, but um Man, it's, I mean, they're just, it's so hit and miss here. But, uh, yeah, weirdly enough, this is the more famous of the two films. Yeah, we should talk about some of that, that, some of those performances because I do think, you know, I had a lot of fun with, um, uh, Morgan Fairchild here, uh, cause yeah, she's just playing a straight up bitch and she's delightful at it. And, uh, you know, I think it really, she gives a lot of energy to those scenes, uh, and, and makes that part of the film work as much as it does or the TV movie work as much as it does. Um, we got to talk though about about mouse because <laughs> I don't think they're going for creeper, but she really, really is. And then there's this interesting subtext of are they gonna go with them being in a relationship and you know have this some, some subtextual lesbian you know attraction or, or something going on there because it seems like they're really close, even though mouse is totally creepy when she's introduced and kind of stalky. But then they they give uh then they give Sarah a love interest of the TA. So I have no idea what they're trying to do there. I, I mean, I think it's just that Mouse is in love with her, and I don't. I never got a sense that they were ever going to make it any more than just this girl crush 
thing between the two of them. Um, and as if to drive that point home to say, hey, we're not going in that direction, they give her this trumped up male uh, her love teacher. Interest. Not a teacher. It's not a teacher. But... No, the TA, and he's yeah. in her. she's in his class, though. Yeah, yeah. So it was really inappropriate. Simon, what did you think of Mouse? Uh, I tried not to. And I also tried <laughs> not to think about uh, the TA, who's <laughs> just, he was like, not, not a character. Um,. As much as he does bring us that incredible classroom sequence, which is, which as far as I'm concerned, is is the easy highlight of this movie. <laughs> it doesn't help that Pharaoh is. I mean, she really. I said this before, but she's the she's terrible. I mean, she's just. Um, it's almost unwatchable. It's it hurt me to watch her act. Did you call that acting? No, I. Well, I hope it's acting. I hope that that's not how she is all the time. But I, 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 I just couldn't. I couldn't get past. I mean, you, you said it was creepy. I don't think it's interesting enough to even be creepy. It, it's, uh, yeah, she's, she's, she's the worst thing in here. And she probably got the gig by association, uh, a little nepotism there, but yeah, it's a, I mean, it's it, her career was a very short one. It only lasted a few years. Um, and, and I don't know even what happened to her after she stopped acting. So she became a nurse. Is that what it was? Yeah. Okay. Good for her. I can't get past um, having her be a, a violinist. <laughs> and, but okay, so terrible fake violin playing. Sure, that's, I try to not let that bother me too much. I fail, but I try. Uh, but they have her, like, say, play something for me. And they have her play Gymnapodie, which is a piano piece. It's just like any piece. It's like, oh, let's have her play a piano piece. It's just like, oh, gosh. I don't know. There's a. Uh, <laughs> It was just distracting for me. Let's let her play piano, and then you cannot see your hands, and it can be for the best. Um, do we have any anything else we want to talk about um, uh, in this in this film? Any other fun or so bad it's good? Or, I mean, is this a movie that you guys think you can enjoy, or people could enjoy on a so bad it's good kind of level? I, I mean, maybe, but you know, it's funny you mentioned the thing about uh, her playing Jim uh, Pedi. And I think maybe they were planning to have her play it on piano, but earlier in the movie, they smash a piano, and maybe it was, like, the only piano they had. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know, the I, I'm curious what you guys thought of the, I mean, the, the, the most direct reference point between this film and Carrie is, uh, it actually doesn't even take place at the end. It takes place about two-thirds of the way through, um, where, where uh, Sarah is set up. And is, and is humiliated in front of her house, in front of other people. What, what? And it's supposed to be a turning point moment in the film. But what did you guys think of that scene? That's a crappy prank or, <laughs> or thing to do. Because like, right outside of her door, then she just turns around and goes home. If you're going to be horrible, you wait till she's in the middle of a public space. She's going to have to walk all the way across campus covered in filth. I'm just saying the bitches could have been bitchier. Yeah. Um, but uh, the other thing I do, do need to mention, and look, I, I want to hear your thoughts on that as well, Simon. But the other thing I do want to mention is that um, the the central relationship, I guess, in this is that of the two sisters. The one has been adopted as a child, and there's this notion that maybe you know, there, there's some stuff implied with the um, of who who her mother was or some of that other stuff. But um, they they mentioned specifically that Sarah was adopted 
but and raised, you know, with her sister and, and adoptive mother when she was a child. And yet we still get lines of, she's like my sister. It's like, no, no, she is your sister. <laughs> she is. And then the mom at the beginning is like, oh, I hope you rush my sorority. Biological daughter. Oh, and bye, adoptive daughter. I mean, it's like, <laughs> come on, guys. Yeah. I, I like how you call it implied. Yeah, like that you're giving it so much more credit than it deserves. I actually like the relationship between the sisters. It was one of the more interesting there's an actual there's actual drama uh with with the uh the I forget her name, Morgan Brittany character that uh that I hadn't expected to care. I thought that at some point she was just gonna become full on bitchy and that never happened. She was always very protective. And I kinda liked that it didn't make that easy that sort of easy it could have just easily downshifted into her becoming a bitch but um i kind of like that protective nature that she that they, they they gave her and by the way <laughs> did you know morgan fairchild played the mother in the remake so yes um i just <laughs> uh i i'm just laughing to myself because i have a sister and if anyone <laughs> did anything that happens at the very opening of this movie <laughs> to yeah. my sister and i was there yeah, this this is not Patty is not a protective sister. As soon as they tell her to call her sister a pig, elephant, and dog, that's when you do the, you know, verbal bitch slap and walk away. Uh, so yeah, we have different definitions of protective. Well, listen, it's not some different. De- it's just the movie definition. Yeah, seventies TV <laughs> definition, maybe I don't know. Yeah. So, Simon, any final thoughts on uh, the initiation of Sarah? I've already thought about this too much. <laughs> Touche. And, and on that note, let's transition to our second uh, feature here, which is "Are You in the House Alone?" Also from nineteen seventy-eight. For me, at least, it, there's a lot more of substance, or a lot more interesting happening in this one, even if maybe it doesn't all succeed. And by maybe, I mean it doesn't all succeed. <laughs> but one of the best things that this does is it opens with the main character saying she's been raped and that no one will believe her. And, and no, you know, because I went into this having a sense of what it was about, but I didn't realize that, that it opened. And then the first, you know, two thirds of the movie is in a flashback. And so, so by doing, by opening in this way, first of all, it gets out of the way the what is the, what's going to happen, what's the trauma. And then it sets up, it's just just sort of amazing to watch because every man in her vicinity becomes a threat. And you're just watching going like, is it going to be the teacher who's you know telling her to pose sexy for a picture in class? Is it going to be the babysitting, the, the dad that she's babysitting for? Is it going to be her boyfriend? Is it going to be her ex-boyfriend? Is it going to be her drunk dad? You know? There's so much potential there, and it really, it's a testament to, yeah, no, these are all legitimate threats that any teenage girl could have been experiencing. And so I really think that that part of it works even more than they maybe were, were planning. It's weird, because once the actual, once the flashbacks sort of catch up to where it be, the whole movie begins, uh, just after she's been raped and she, yeah, the police are there, the film gets way less interesting after because it really doesn't know how to wrap this up. I think there's a there's some sense it wants to be sensitive to this this girl's plight, but at the same time, I don't think anyone involved in this film had it in them to be that sensitive. And 
Um, the, it goes through some weird machinations the plot does about because we it's not I mean I mean, it's not a mystery to us after a certain point who did it and even her idea that no one would believe her I don't think there are very I think everyone does believe her don't they it just is they can't do anything about it the people in her immediate vicinity do like her family believes her and you know the guidance council or whatever um but the the school like that kind of a thing i think is what they she we're supposed to think that she means yeah but it is it, i mean it is really funny because it becomes by opening that way it it becomes uh a mystery um as to which of these creepy guys in her life is going to is going to do this and I'm still not convinced it wasn't the photography instructor. Um, <laughs> Cause he, man, that guy, that guy should go to prison for so many reasons. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, I mean, it, yeah, it's an effective paranoid sort of thriller. It's not really a horror film at all. Um, but it, it's an interesting, yeah, like a, uh, I, I like the sort of paranoia that it's set up and I like, and I don't know as many of the actors in this one, so I was kind of pleasantly surprised. Although I did find out that the lead actress is married has been married to Thomas Dolby for a very long time. So that's about all I got on her. <laughs> well, I think she does a good job. And yeah. uh and you and the other thing that was sort of entertaining to watch is just, you know, what it's fun to think about this in relation to the show Stalker. Because just there's this this girl, this teenager who's saying, No, some creeper is calling my house and breathing heavy and and leaving uh notes in my locker that are disturbing and everybody's like oh it's just a prank mm-hmm. oh you know boys you know like just the, she tells so many people and they all just tell her okay but you're a girl and he's a boy so just you know ignore it boys will be boys and i'm sure nothing will come of it and then of course something horrific does come of it um Simon, what did you think of both the structure, you know, using that narrative device, and then uh, some of these other issues surrounding um, this film? When I was saying earlier how it fits in with horror trends, etc., I sort of see this movie as sort of a TV movie answer to stuff like, I mean, you could connect it back to uh, Bob Clark's Clark's, uh, Black Christmas, especially the creepy phone voice stuff, as well as Wes Craven's Last House on the Left and some other things, but it's it's sort of like a, a TV-safe way to handle some of those ideas or tropes. And I think in terms of how it does that, it does it in a much more interesting way than The Initiation of Sarah does. Um, you know, Steve, when you were talking about how she says no one will believe her, and on a factual level, that doesn't really turn out to be true, but I think it still works as an emotional beat. I think it, it makes sense for the character to be in that space where she felt like when she was trying to explain to everyone that something was happening, she got, you know, people weren't receptive for the most part. So I think it, it works for her emotionally to be saying that in that moment. I, I think it, 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 it's not really a plot hole or anything. I think it's consistent with the character. Well, especially because she then, when we catch back up with that, um, she then says she doesn't remember her attacker. And after the least compassionate prodding ever, <laughs> Olivia Benson would just <laughs> just destroy this huh. this cop for the way she treats the, her victim. Um, but the after some prodding from the officer, she then you know 
is willing to say who attacked her. Uh, and of course, spoiler alert, I don't think anybody cares. Dennis Quaid. Uh, so yep. the, the cast is Dennis Quaid and Blythe Danner as the mom. As, oh, I mean, Blythe Danner, I usually love her, but there's some really bad reaction <laughs> shots from her in this. Like the dad is saying how powerless he feels and how angry. And she just let, like has concerned mother face. Just like, oh, honey, it's it's going to be okay. Kind of look on her face like, oh, Oh, goodness, Blythe, Danny, you're so much better than this. Yeah, I think she's a lot better in the first half of the movie. And I actually think that the parent characters are unusually believable. And uh, developed. And developed for, for this for this sort of story. And, and actually, in general, especially if you've just watched Initiation of Sarah beforehand, as I did, in general, the performances are a lot more naturalistic and the dialogue is a lot more believable. So that was nice to see. Hmm. <laughs> I also like some of the little details, just like, like every time the the creeper calls the house wh where she's babysitting, uh, Gail then you know she locks, she makes sure the doors are locked, makes sure the shades are drawn, the windows are locked, and then goes and checks on the kids. I love that she checks on the kids. Normally, the babysitter in these kinds of movies never does that. <laughs> That's because babysitters don't care about kids. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, isn't that an open secret of babysitting? Have we all have we all babysat? Is this not widely acknowledged? Maybe I'm just a different kind of babysitter. But um, uh, what did uh, what what did you guys think about then the because uh, we've really talked about it as breaking into two different you know it's more interesting, more promising until it catches back up. What did you guys think worked maybe about the the end part of it? Was there anything that worked? Uh, I mean. It could have been aliens or something that would have been worse, but I don't know. It it, it sets. It feels dishonest to have. To, you've set up this emotional landscape that I think makes sense and is dark and upsetting, and then they basically wrap it up with this MacGyvery solution. That especially the way that it's uh, blocked, when you when she finally gets like the the shot that clinches it, just it's so unconvincing and and schlocky, and it doesn't fit in with the rest of the movie at all. It's yeah, you're right. It's it's completely unsatisfying. Like there's nothing. There's no sense of justice. There's no sense of vengeance or revenge. I mean, I I didn't know that's this is the direction it was going to go, and I assumed it was going to be some sort of revenge film. Uh, after it became clear that no one in the school or the police or anybody was going to take her seriously, but um, where it goes from there. It, it it's it baffled me to be honest. There's scenes in there that have no purpose. I mean, there's a lot of scenes in this movie that have no purpose, but really, uh, I'm trying to remember specifically moments that. I mean, that the, the whole scene with the print, her talking to her. I guess it's the principal of the school. Is that who that was? Yeah. Well, that woman that was. I mean, it was some of the most. I mean, she literally was saying things that were equivalent to, you know victim shaming and and well maybe you provoked it or maybe i mean just stuff like that that it was just it's just kind of gross and 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 wrong and and i realized we're looking at this story through very modern eyes in a time when this is these sort of things are being discussed on an almost daily basis so we're we're definitely seeing it in a different way than we probably would have in the 70s but even so it's not uh it, it feels I, I, I kind of wonder what people who watched this at the time thought of the treatment of of 
the victim and even le- allowing the victim to have some sort of justice or revenge uh, in this moment. So it almost made me wonder why they made the film hmm. if they weren't going to have some sort of satisfying ending. Well, I think the a lot of, especially the first part of the film, really works as sort of a how could this happen? How could nobody notice, you know? And she's she's a teenager, so when... Uh, you know, if, if if she'd said, hey, mom, look at this note that I got that says rape. Yeah. Her mom would have said, OK, never mind. Let This is important. But when her mom's saying there's a lot of really serious stuff going on, that's more important than some of the stuff that we're dealing with personally. She takes it as, oh, ignore these really creepy uh, stalking I- is situations that are happening because she's a teenager and she doesn't know better. Um, is it, You know, it really sets up the how how these different red flags are not addressed and she's in a position um you know where she, she there's a clear sign of escalation of what's happening to her and her uh, you know the threat that she's facing mm-hmm. and yet it isn't taken seriously and it isn't heated um and then also and of course just having it be a friend or an, a, a friend of you know the boyfriend of her friend yeah. it's very realistically with acquaintance rape you know so she lets him in because she knows this guy she yeah. thinks um and so, and so i do think all of that stuff works it's again like we said how it goes from there and, it, and i think there's even a real a real effort like you said i think it was simon you said to try to show the perspective of um of her and her parents and uh the her boyfriend and the immediate fallout like the sense of powerlessness the what can we do the dad just wants to basically go kill the guy um the mom is worried that people are going to find out that her daughter wasn't a virgin and then so therefore that's going to mean anything and you know diff- there are different it's a different time now than it was then so yeah. who knows but really it is does come down to i mean there isn't a satisfying solu- solution to this unless you're going to go full on revenge fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Although when we're talking about, you know, contemporary resonance and what's changed uh, and, you know, how people would view this now versus 1978, I don't think that much is different, really. I mean, if you want to talk about victim shaming, uh, <laughs> not exactly uncommon and anyone who pays attention to the Canadian mediascape will uh-huh. know what I'm hinting at right now. And I'm just going to shut the hell up immediately, <laughs> but <laughs> it's not exactly going away in the real world. It's definitely still there. I'm talking about in the yeah. movie world. They, att- they usually these days attempt to be a little more sensitive about that stuff uh, just because right. they know that people will write essays about it if they don't. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we're only allowed to call those think pieces now, Steve. <laughs> Whatever. Um, yeah, they. Uh, you, Kate, you reminded me of, of a scene that uh, that just rubbed me the wrong way in so many ways. The toward the end, where where she does, uh, where the girl confronts her friend who is dating the rapist, and and the friend just explodes at her, and I, I just like I found that very. Very unbelievable. Although I did like the scene where she kind of confronts the boyfriend later, but that just that scene of her just going off on her friend who has been through this thing. You're jealous of us. And like, I can't imagine (laughs) a scenario where Gail would be jealous of what her friend has over because she had a pretty good relationship with her boyfriend. So, so yeah, I just that whole scene just, just 
smelled fake the whole time. And it's not like this is something that she's come forward with on her own. She was found dazed and with blood coming out of her mouth on the yeah, floor yeah. of a house. So this is not just a case of he said, she said. There, there are at least a few other elements that confirm what she's saying. When it was all said and done, I did sort of wonder, what is the takeaway here? What are we supposed to learn from this movie? Uh, Don't ignore letters in your locker that say rape. <laughs> I know. I know. It's like, if they're not going to be subtle about their threats, probably shouldn't ignore them. I think the lesson of this movie is uh, rape happens. Rape <laughs> culture is real, but everything will be okay if you've got a camera. <laughs> At least he'll go away and you won't have to move in with your aunt. But <laughs> on that note, do we have any final thoughts? On this film, I did really enjoy some of the lead performances. The teenagers, I thought, on the whole, yeah. were very good. Certainly, it's better than the initiation of Sarah. Not even a question, as far as I'm concerned. The uh, I yeah. I still think that we need to put out some sort of uh, APB on that teacher, though, other than the photography teacher. Yeah, he's he's really over the top creepy. Like in every possible way, yeah. I don't think they're going for him to be creepy, though. That's the thing. I think they're, like, playing with this notion, is it the teacher? But they want you to then, after it's revealed that it's not the teacher, to look back and be like, oh, no, he was just being a supportive teacher. <laughs> Except that, you know, he's like, okay, so let's try different looks. So you, so do sexy. And then later, she's developing pictures, like, there's some sexy pictures. It's like, y y I'll give you one unintentional crossing the line with, with sexy. I will not give you two. Can I just say that her initial take on do sexy is the thing, like, the photo that she takes of herself is the thing that most dates this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, uh, but no, he actually gets, you actually, he actually asks, says something about her being sexy three times because... She does that thing initially, and then he goes, "No, that no, that's that's Hollywood sexy. Do real sexy." And then, then yeah, I'd like, come on, dude, that's not. Yeah. that is no. not right. <laughs> there would be a uh, there would be a seminar <laughs> that, that that teacher would have to attend had the oh principal walked God. in. Yeah. Well, uh, this I, let's just still do it. I know. I know. I don't think that this is in contention for the top of our. Steve Brookopee's horror no. pick list, but just, you know, for completionism, we've got Duel, Salem's Lot, It, Storm of the Century, Trilogy of Terror, Carrie, the 2002 TV version, and Regat. Where are we ranking these amongst that group? Oh, God. They're not going to do very well. <laughs> no, but okay, well, let's make it easy. I believe we both had Carrie as the clear least of those. Oh. So. <laughs> How does this rate to compared to Carrie? This is the 1978 equivalent of the Carrie TV movie. Only two <laughs> years after the real Carrie. Yeah. Like, uh, they're basically on an exact par in terms of quality for their time period. Yeah, but I mean, so are you saying our new low is Initiation of Sarah? Is yeah. it the Initiation of Sarah, Carrie, Are You in the House Alone? Or is Carrie above Are You in the House Alone? Oh, no. I would put Are You in the House Alone above Carrie for sure. Okay, what do you think, Steve? I am not sure I agree with that, but I will go along with it because I don't care enough to fight about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I love, you know what? You know that I have an affection for that version of Carrie. So, but, but I would be, it, it is definitely, these are, these three all belong in the same grouping. Yes. <laughs> in what order doesn't matter. Although Sarah clearly goes at the bottom. So, well, it's, you know, it's good. It's, it's fun to, for me to have a non-traumatizing yeah. installment of Steve Procopi's horror picks. And I actually fear 
for what you're going to do to me next time. I feel like you're going to just be like, I got to make sure I over, you know, go to the next level with this. I really do feel that way right now. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I got to, I have another like five months before I have to put myself through that, I guess. So yep. I'm going to just think about that. Um, thank you so much, Steve, for coming back on the podcast. Uh, it was a fun conversation, if, even if maybe not as scary as, as we might have hoped. Um, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, ain't it cool .com. And uh, again, thank you so much, Steve, for coming on. Thanks. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Ain't it cool?